Hi everybody, it's Miranda, here to introduce episode two, an interview with my friend David Wheeler. David's six-year-old son, Ben, was killed in the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. You will get to learn a little bit about Ben and who he was. David and I also had a frank talk about grief and navigating life after loss, and how to do a better job of supporting our friends and loved ones in grief by stepping outside of our own needs and being aware of our personal reactions. You'll see for yourself that David is insightful and honest, and he's obviously given these subjects a lot of thought. Before we start, there's a reference that comes up when David talks about the Sandy Hook Firehouse. That firehouse has significance because it sits right next to Sandy Hook School, and it's the place where families waited on that terrible day to be reunited with their children and loved ones. 26 families, including David and his wife Francine and their son Nate, were in the firehouse when they learned their loved ones were not coming out of the school. It's a heavy reference, I know, but by witnessing their story, we can add to the circle of empathy around the families who are so deeply affected by this national tragedy. There's a lot of wisdom and hope in this interview too, so I hope you'll stick around. The last thing I wanna say is that this was my very first interview, and you may notice it sounds more like a conversation between friends, which it is. When I listened back to it, I wished I had interrupted a lot less, so sorry about that, I will get better at this. David, on the other hand, is a pro. Literally, he's a trained actor and experienced speaker, but he didn't seem to mind my rookie mistakes too much, and I hope you won't either. So let's jump into it. My conversation with David Wheeler. Hello and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacchiana. I am a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. My guest, David Wheeler, is a designer and illustrator, writer, speaker, and musician living in Sandy Hook, Connecticut with his wife, Francine, and their two sons, Nate and Matthew. On December 14, 2012, David and Francine's six-year-old son, Ben, was killed in his first grade classroom at Sandy Hook Elementary School, along with 19 of his classmates and six educators. Since Ben's death, he and Francine have engaged in candid conversations about gun violence and loss on The Rachel Maddow Show, Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, Moyers & Company, CBS This Morning, and 60 Minutes. Their story is also featured in the 2016 documentary, New Town, which I highly recommend. David has recently been included in publications ranging from the New York Times to the podcast The Daily, discussing the groundbreaking lawsuit he and Francine are taking part in against Remington Arms, the maker of the gun used in the Sandy Hook massacre. He is also my neighbor, my friend, and part of my family's inner circle here in Newtown. Hi, David. Hi. Thank you so much for coming by on a Saturday morning to talk with me. Starting this podcast has been a big leap and learning curve, and it makes all the difference to have my friends by my side. So let's start with Ben. 
I met you and Francine after Ben was killed, so I never had the pleasure of knowing him. But I'd love for you to tell us about Ben and give us a picture of who he was and the gifts that he brought to your life. Well, any any parent of uh, a male child knows how rambunctious a six-year-old boy can be. There's a certain energy that little boys have that is often remarked on and talked about in terms of uh, the difference between they and their sisters and that sort of thing. I can relate. Yes, yes. I, know, I know you can. And, and so Ben was that um, up to 11. Uh, his dial, <laughs> his knob went to 11. <clears throat> and the thing about Ben, like so many um, little boys is that, and I've said this before, is that there was nothing on that dial between one and 11. It just, you know, he woke up full speed and he, and he went to sleep. I, I, I actually saw him, experienced him fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. He was talking <laughs> oh to me gosh. and I just fell asleep. <clears throat> so he was a very um, energetic and rambunctious kid with a real twinkle in his eye and a, a very ready smile. He was still hanging on to at six a little bit of that sort of shyness that little kids have. When he met someone that he'd never met before, he would sometimes sort of duck behind his mom's legs a little bit. But he was, you know, at six, he was starting to figure out his his place in the world and his, his relationship to it. He was a, a smart and funny kid. He loved jokes. He loved humor. He loved making people laugh. And he liked sort of being the loudest little kid in the room. I wonder where he got that from. I have no idea. People, <laughs> people often remark that they always knew, they always knew when Ben was in the room, you know? Yeah. He just, he had that presence. He was a lovely kid, a really delightful boy. And, um, well, I have to say that I have really enjoyed hearing your and Francine's stories about him and your descriptions of him are just so helpful to understand who he was in mm -hmm. addition to seeing pictures of him. And right. I wish that I could have known him. Right. Well, a, a life force like that leaves a big hole yeah. uh, when it's gone. And it was a tremendous absence and a, and a quiet in our house that took us all by great surprise. I mean, as, as shell-shocked as we were in the immediate aftermath, um, none of us were ready for the quiet in the house. Wow, um, that really paints a picture. So here you are in deep grief and just the, mm -hmm. the feeling of energy in your home. It goes from two boys and a, mm -hmm. a whole family and now here you are in grief and it's just the lack of that that energy that Ben brought. Before he was killed, Nate had kind our older son, Nate, who was oh. three years older than Ben. He was nine when, when Ben died. Um, he had essentially given up on talking at the dinner table oh, because, wow. because Ben was that. Even as the older brother. Yeah, yeah, even as the older brother, he had sort of, oh. his personality is a little, a little more calm and a little more introspective anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ben was absolutely the extrovert, but Nate had basically just given up and it took him at least a month. It took all of us at least a, a month to realize that Nate could get a word in at the dinner table before anybody started talking. I mean, it was wow. a long time, wow. you know, because your conversational energy as a family has a mm -hmm. real solid dynamic that yeah. lasts for years, sometimes yeah. even generations, but certainly for years. And, and when that changes so quickly and so suddenly, it's shocking. And you almost don't know what happened. It's like you came home and all of the furniture had been rearranged and replaced with other furniture. And you knew that you had a place to sit, but you don't know why it's different. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, so with you no have explanation. That, that lasting effect too. I mean, mm -hmm. I think we all know when you have a family, especially with multiple kids, when one is somewhere else 
during dinner or during a family event. Right. It just, everything feels a little different. Right. 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 Yeah. So you had to live with that every day. Right. Um, so one of the things that I was curious about is that, you know, every family that was affected by this tragedy um, had to make their own decisions about how they wanted to handle it and whether they wanted to speak out. Right. Um, and I was wondering what it was that initially made you and Francine choose to talk about your story and share it so openly and generously. Well, I've said this before, and I'm going to amend it a little bit here because upon reflection over the last almost seven years now, I've, I've slightly changed the way I look at this. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that an event like this, this kind of sudden violent public traumatic grief or any, any kind of trauma, really, mm -hmm. it doesn't change who you are at your core. Um, in many ways, it amplifies who you are. And uh, a metaphor I've used before is that it's kind of like your swimming pool gets drained. And if you have crap at the bottom of your swimming pool, it's more visible. And everybody sees it. You know, you can't hide it under the water anymore. You're, you're, you, everything's exposed. It's yeah. like it's like the relief is higher uh, in everything, emotional mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. personal. So Francine and I, having been in the entertainment business and having been actors and performers before we started our second lives and before we met and decided to quit the business and she went into teaching and I went into graphic design and illustration, um, you know, we were already public people. We were already comfortable standing up and talking to hundreds, if not thousands of people. We'd right. done it many, many times. Yes. Um, we were comfortable in front of cameras. Mm -hmm. We were comfortable in front of microphones. It was something we knew very well. Yep. So it was a natural connection to make. We are also the kind of people who believe that our job is to make the world better. And... Love that about you guys. So you, you can't not immediately think, I have to do something. Now, that's a common response from all kinds of people in a situation like this. And we, we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But it doesn't invalidate in any way other people's personal responses. It is equally legitimate and correct to go under the covers and never come out. Yeah. If that's what you need to do and if that's who you are. Mm -hmm then there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and that can get dicey because in a very public tragedy, it's impossible not to look at someone else's process, which is completely different from yours, completely antithetically 180 degrees from where you are, and not think, oh, that's not how I would do it, or I wonder if they're getting what they need. Is that a reaction you had? It's a reaction I had, and I know that it's a reaction people had about me. Yes, I'm sure. I, I, and some have been public about it, and which is fine, but it shows me that there might be a little more understanding available to them that they are not currently taking advantage of. I'm well, I think the, we can all learn. I'm trying to that, find the right? most diplomatic way to say <laughs> that, but and 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 the, and the same is true of me. I mean, yeah. I look at someone who's uh, and stop me if I go too far off the rails on this, but. You know, in this very homogenous Connecticut town, which is not the shining paradigm of diversity no, in any that way. That is the, one of the biggest disadvantages to our town. You could not pick 26 more different families. Mm. I mean, if you, if you plucked 26 wow. people off of the lunchtime sidewalk on 6th Avenue in the middle of Manhattan, you wouldn't get 26 more different people wow. in terms of the way they look at but I have maintained and still do to this day that while I might be uh, politically or 
ideologically completely on the other side of the spectrum from someone else in this situation, which I am, Mm -hmm. I would not hesitate to push them out of the way of a bus and take that hit myself. It's knowing you, I believe it. And I know that they feel the same way too. That's the thing. I mean, we have that in common. It's like, it's like, because we share this, no matter where we are ideologically, there's something that supersedes all of this, something bigger than all of this. And that's, you know, it's a reminder of, 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 you know, sort of pay attention to what's important. Yeah, I can tell you, I just have a tiny little experience of that myself when the tragedy struck because I'm I'm a social worker. Mm-hmm. It's in my training and it's in my character to do something. Right. And I felt like I have to step up. Right. You know, and I, I, my children went to Sandy Hook School, but they had already graduated so while they were of course affected by it because everybody in our town was they were so far far less affected than your family or you know so many other layers and so one of the first things that I did was I think that we were driving home one night a couple of nights after the tragedy I think we'd gone to a maybe a community um, meeting at the the local meeting house, which Mm -hmm. is like a non-denominational church. And we were driving home and we saw the press in Sandy Hook Center. And I jumped out of the car and I said, I want to say something. And Adam drove the kids home. And I just, I sort of hung around until one of those CNN reporters, you know, put a microphone in front of my face. And I said, basically, I just had this message and I wanted to say our hearts are so broken for everybody here and there's good in the world. Like, I just felt like I needed to say that Mm -hmm. as a Mm -hmm. member of the town. And Mm -hmm. I got criticized by close friends of mine who were like, I never knew that you were interested in getting in front of a camera kind of thing, you know? Right. Right. There's Um, a real value judgment, especially in new England, especially in new England. There is a real value judgment to saying things publicly and being a public person. And that, I got to say, that's like a double-sided thing for me. It's one thing mm-hmm. I also love about this town in New England sure. is that I grew up in Westchester and like I knew a lot of people in the entertainment field and around here, there's a lot of really accomplished people with really interesting paths. Something in the water in this town. I don't know what it is, it's but true, it's crazy. But people yeah. are really quiet about yeah. it. They yeah. don't, they don't brag yeah. about it right. um, and they don't need to stand out and get attention. Right. And I love that too. Right. So that was tricky for me. And then I went on to become an activist in the gun violence prevention movement. So there were a lot of ups and downs there, but I can, I can relate it in a tiny way to what you're saying. Do you ever think about the littlest aspect of that impulse to jump out of the car and get in front of a microphone and a camera that was just for you? Um, Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have to cop to some of that too. Because that's an important part of the urge to do something. Yeah. Everyone has it. Anyone, and and this is where things get tough because after something like this, there's about 24 to 48 hours when the entire town was completely unified. Yeah. And it only lasted that long because right after that, a number of people stand up and say, We have to do something to help. Mm -hmm. And very few people anywhere in the world because of the nature of people can agree on what that help should look like. Yeah. And that's where things start to divide and that's where things start to split. And it happened immediately. It happened absolutely mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. The minute people stood up and said, we need to do something. That's when things started. 
Yeah, moving because aside. we're not going to agree. But where were you going when you well, asked me if, if well, because, it was for me? Because that's, that, that is an important part of the urge to help. And that is also an important part of the concept of the concentric circles of trauma and grief. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in that center circle, as I've described in my relationship to some of the other families, while you may not necessarily agree with it, you don't, certainly not publicly, try not to disparage it because it's their journey, not yours. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, but when you're in that center circle, I almost feel like all of the other people in that circle, no matter what they do, they get a pass. Yeah. It's okay. Right? Yeah. But that's where that stops. And the minute you move out one uh -huh. degree from okay. that center circle and someone does something to help, when there's pushback, it has to be considered as possibly legitimate because you're not in that center circle. Yep. You're, I, you're, I agree. you're one step removed. Yes. And you have so a higher responsibility. Right. You have exactly. I think that's you're, totally you're, fair. That's exactly right. And, um, when you asked me that question, I said, I have to cop to that. I mean, there's the, there's the altruistic side of me that mm -hmm. it helps me deal with the tragedy to help. Right. Right. Um, but then there were moments along the way where I got attention that right. felt good and it was distracting. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I did make mistakes and mm -hmm. I was a little ashamed of myself. So mm -hmm. I, I really learned from that as well. Mm -hmm. So many things are sparked by that comment. Um, Really? Yeah. And one of them is, you know, the idea that there is good in the world. Your desire to, to tell people that there is, to remind people that there is good in the world. Mm -hmm. And there absolutely is. And it's my, even after this, it's my, it's my wholehearted belief that there's far more good than, than bad. And you know, even in my growing recognition, which is partially age mm -hmm. and the half century plus that I've lived on this mm -hmm. planet, that the person who can get from birth to a peaceful death without facing significant trauma in their lives is mm -hmm. the rare exception. The rare exception. Agreed. Everyone has trauma. They everyone might not suffers. Tell you. It might not be obvious. Everyone but suffers you're right. in 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 so often almost unspeakable ways. Yeah. And and we find a way to ignore that as a society. And the other thing I was going to say is that one of the things that's happened over the course of the last few years is that I've been approached by the media because I've been a public person because I've spoken out. I've been approached by an unfortunately relatively small, only two really members of the media who've asked me my thoughts on how they could do their jobs better. And one of the things I've argued for, and I, I, I believe this still, that when a, when a trauma like this happens and a tragedy like this happens, give the victims time, leave them alone. If somebody, if you run across someone on the sidewalk or in our case at the firehouse Oh and they're gosh. and they're inconsolably weeping because their child has been murdered. Yeah. Let them go. Yeah. Talk to somebody else. Talk it. to some. Oh, 
they were they could not get to people fast enough. Constant requests wow. in the immediate aftermath. Constant okay, requests from media. Horrible to hear. Right. I don't know. But why it's not it's surprised. surprised. No, it I don't shouldn't know. It surprise shouldn't you. surprise me at all. I mean, our phone rang off the hook. Well, and I remember. I mean, there was a barricade. In right. front of your road saying right. no right. press. I right. mean, um, people right. are knocking on our doors. Right. Like, right. knocking on anybody's door. Right. And that was, that was uh, our, our, our neighbor. I believe, I'm pretty sure I don't have exact verification on this, but I believe is our neighbor, Ed. There's a stretch of the road we live on that's actually not part of the town road right. system. Yeah, he, his family owns that. Uh, okay. And, and he bought a section of privacy fencing and stuck it in the ground and yeah. it stuck out into the road. Remember, it went mm-hmm. a few feet into the road and then took fluorescent orange paint and yes. no press uh, on it. Yeah, and, I can and, still see it. And I appreciated that. You know, I really, it meant a lot to me. I'm glad. It really did. That didn't keep producers from a particular show knocking on our door and asking us where they, pretending they were lost. They said, oh, we're, oh. we don't know where we are and we're trying to, I mean, it was unbelievable. My advice, you know, to the media, not that they're listening or care, but, you know, they must care to some degree because two of them have asked me, but, you know, leave the families alone for a little while. Mm-hmm. Let them come to you. You know, there are plenty of other people who can speak eloquently on the topic. I know that you think that the tears and the drama and the misery is, is going to sell, get more eyeballs and more clicks for you. But, you know, have a shred of decency and don't do it. And that's coming from someone who wanted to speak out a lot. Right. Yeah, right. So I mean, it's, it, it, took, you know, it took me a little while. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, I weigh very carefully every offer that comes in. I'm sure you do. Uh, yeah. I didn't have to think about this one. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about was the kind of things that people say that inadvertently add to your pain, often even Mm. if they're really meant just to be kind or people aren't thinking. And so tell me about the kind of things that people have said to you and Francine since Ben's death that have been inadvertently upsetting. I'm going to I'm going to pull the frame back a little bit. Okay. And this is going to include, you know, sort of under the general rubric of of, you know, advice to people who are facing a situation like this if you're not directly affected. Okay. You know, if you're not directly involved with a tragedy like this but you're close and you want to know how to behave. Because we heard that all the time. I don't know what to say and I don't know how to be. I just don't know how to be around you. Yes, and often people make the mistake of just avoiding you or well, saying right, nothing. Right, right, right. That happened a lot. That happened a lot. You know, we'll get back to this, but I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna diverge a little bit. I've said this before. If you say something like this happens to you and your family, and I may have told this, if you take a, a legal size note and you draw a line down the middle, vertical line down the middle, and on the left side you put the names of all your friends and family that you are absolutely certain are gonna step up and be there for you support you unquestioningly. And on the other side, you put the names of all the people and friends and family in your life that you believe are going to disappear and and not show up and be awkward and not write you off, but but just not be able to support you. Okay. You're going to be wrong 25% of the time. It's astonishing. People that I thought would stand by our sides unquestioningly, including immediate family members, mm-hmm. couldn't handle it. Not all my immediate family, just yes, particular yes. immediate family, couldn't handle it. People that were on the list of friends that might get fired for years, they were constantly sort of in that 
space of, of, you know, maybe our life would be a little less stressful if we just didn't expect anything from this person, okay. you know, those kinds yep, of friends sure. showed up in ways you can't even begin to imagine, showed up like completely altered their lives so that they could be there for us, took everything on their personal plate and shoved it to the side and put us in the middle of it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so both of those things happen. So you can be ready for that. Get ready for that because that's how it works. Well, that fits perfectly with the theme of our podcast and touches a lot about what the story that I told about myself last mm-hmm. week and the concept of re-victimization. Mm-hmm. Well, let me answer yeah. your question about things that people okay, say. Yeah, so, you can be so more what I was what I was getting to. at was yeah. that a lot of people. A phrase I use that's probably mostly coined by me, but. They don't have a high level of grief fluency. They're not oh, fluent good. in grief. Well, that's as, probably most of us. It's cultural and it's yeah, societal, and we need to work on that. And so they don't know what to do, and they don't know what to say, or they don't think, and they mm-hmm. say something that's kind of thoughtless and possibly innocently, mm-hmm. but nonetheless can be very painful. So the kinds of things that we heard and continue to hear, frankly, that are difficult for us to handle are the statements that people make when they either work too hard to pretend it didn't happen or are not aware, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, simply not aware of what part of the transaction is about them. That's the biggest that thing. That makes a lot of sense from the things that I've heard yeah. you and Francine describe. That's the biggest thing. Be aware as you approach someone who's suffered a terrible loss and is in the middle of active, significant, and overwhelming grief and traumatic grief. Mm-hmm. Be aware of what part of what you're about to say, do, is really about you. Because it's an incredibly big percentage. That's a... That is really wise and great advice. And I don't think of all the articles I've read about being careful what to say when someone's in grief, mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard that one. And yet it's so important and so common. And I think that's because these losses touch us and they, right. just like any loss that we experience brings up our other losses. Right. It touches us in ways that mm-hmm. are very deep and go right. back to our own experiences. Right. And yet, you're right. We need to be aware and stop ourselves and not put that on the person who's already grieving. And maybe, you know, one thing I've noticed among you and other friends who were affected by the tragedy is that people want to tell them their tragic stories. Right. Well, there is, of course, of course. And it's totally understandable. There's a human need and a desire and a wish to connect, you know, I'm so sorry about your loss. Here's what happened to me. I want to show you that we share pain. Yeah. Well, everybody shares pain. Yeah. And, and in the immediate aftermath of loss, that is not the time to do that. Right. There's an important point that I want to get to and I'll get to later, but it's part of all of it is leading to this one place. Um, and I just wanted to throw in that it, it's a human response, which is, you're, I mean, you're absolutely. totally acknowledging that. And we're, we're not, you know, we're not pointing a finger at anyone. I've made these mistakes myself. We all have. Uh, yeah, we all have. You're right. And you know, often it really does come out of a good place, but it's great. Right. I think our listeners right. would want to know right. what, what to be careful of. Right. Well, I, before this happened to me, 
I was not very good at facing trauma and grief in others. I was not good. I was not fluent at all. Interesting. And I was the kind of person who would just rather say nothing and not write the note and not say anything and not write the letter and not make the phone call and not do the visit. Just it was easier for me and more comfortable just to pretend that and just to go away. Well, you've changed a lot, David. (laughs) Well, that's... I don't think that I suddenly became an incredibly much more empathetic person. I think I just learned a language. Okay. You, you don't think that part of you opened up more? Well, to some degree, certainly. Okay. But but it doesn't matter whether you open up or not inside if you don't know how to express it. Uh, I see what you're saying. And that's yes. the language that I learned for the worst possible reason, but nonetheless, yeah. right? Because a so, lot of us feel that empathy and we care, but we don't know how to write the notes, so we don't. And right. then the other person just gets silence from us. Right. And here's the thing about silence. When you've suffered terrible loss and a friend or family member disappears into silence, mm. that's another loss. That's more grief. Yes. That's re-victimization. Yes. That's another, that's another blow to your heart. Mm. Right? Uh, yes, I mean, there's no, there's I, no I getting around well. that. And, and, you know, I feel yeah. terrible about, I mean, I'm not going to live my life in a, in a giant sack of regret, but, but I feel terrible about the times in my life that someone went through something awful and I didn't step up. Did you go back and address it later? I, I have a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. Not because enough. I haven't actually, I haven't even, I, I haven't, not that I'm saying there's so many of them. A lot of them were a long time ago and yeah. I haven't really identified that. And the people that it's interesting that the people that I've connected with in hindsight mm-hmm. or in, after the fact, mm-hmm. even if it's years after the fact, have said, oh, it, it's fine. Don't worry. You know, you're fine. Hmm. You know, it was rough and nobody held on to any resentment. And I can also, I need to drill down on that a little bit. I didn't do, I didn't actively do anything. Yeah, it tells that, me. I didn't take an action that offended them. Right. It was my inaction yes. that was more comfortable for me and probably could have helped if I'd said something, but I didn't. Let's make an important distinction be- between people who do things that hurt you. Not intentionally, and maybe with all good intention, but they do things mm-hmm. that hurt you. And it happens, especially in a, in a very public tragedy like ours. It happens, and it leads to you know, losing friends and, and losing family members. People who do things without thinking about it to the degree that it actually hurts you. It actually yeah. injures you and causes mm-hmm. you much more pain than you would have experienced otherwise. Do you want to give us an example? Um. Well, sure. Um, when I was, I was 12 or 13, when did this say? I was 15, 14 or 15, when I met the woman that would become my stepmother. Mm-hmm. And we became very close very quickly, uh, creative, interesting, hilarious, uh, intelligent, capable, uh, a remarkable woman. Um, I have no relationship with her anymore. Um, and that exploded because of her. And it, there's a billion reasons for it. Much of it is possibly generational. Much of it is that she is a, a, a survivor of great trauma in her own life. That's often and the case. generationally, she's not necessarily uh, therapeutically inclined. Mm-hmm. So the work to deal with that stuff and understand it has never been done. But as soon as she set foot in our house, it was bad. After Ben was After killed. Ben was killed. And she said unforgivable things to 
other people and to us, but not to us, but certainly we were within earshot. And she wrote, she wrote some letters. I'm sure she thought she was helping, but I don't know how anyone could have looked at this in a real holistic way and thought this is going to be a good thing to send to a woman whose oh. son was just killed. Oh, I'm I don't, so sorry. It was, it was, it was terrible. And so I have no relationship with her anymore. And my father passed away in, in May of 2014. Yeah. Um, so, so I, lost, so now I have, now there's nothing, now there's nothing. It is so much worse when it comes from a first degree relative like that. Yeah. When you're saying they sure. would have been on that side of the legal pad right. that you would have right. thought, right. Would, you wouldn't even have to think about right. it. Right. And there are also circumstances here in town with friends that we've had for years and years and years and years, people we thought would be on that side of the legal pad and, and they, they were, they aren't, they're not, they're gone. We have no relationship. And then at the same time, I, I've seen people really step up and come through for you that I, mm-hmm. I'm guessing surprised you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope you'll join me for the next episode when I speak with my friend Steve Martin, who just finished a long tenure as CEO of Love 146, a nonprofit organization in New Haven, Connecticut. They work to end child trafficking and exploitation through survivor care and prevention. We'll talk about supporting survivors and the remarkable healing power of the human spirit. So what do you do when... It gets too much. What do you do for yourself? So this is kind of the biggest chunk of, of what I've been thinking about. And this has to do with how you treat yourself. And it has to do with how others treat you or how you treat someone who's gone through something like this. Mm-hmm. Grieving is a dynamic, active process. It is exhausting. It is physically and emotionally and psychically exhausting. And it took years for Francine and I to wake up in the morning and not feel like we had nothing in the tank. It took years for that to change. And so... A person who's in deep grief and wrestling with that process needs room to do it and resources. Mm -hmm. They need space. They need time. They need physical space and they need emotional space and they need psychic space. They need energy that they don't have Mm -hmm. to do this. It's like asking someone who's been up for three weeks straight to run a marathon. You're, you're completely depleted, mm-hmm. and yet you've got to face this, yeah. right? And that's just the grieving process part. The other yeah, thing that happened, right. as I've said to you before, the other thing that happened to us, and it happens to lots of families of victims of high-profile public tragedies like this that are so violently traumatic, and also happen to intersect with a significant social conversation, mm-hmm. 
the one around gun violence, uh-huh. um, the one around school safety, uh-huh. um, all of those things. You know, you this terrible, terrible, debilitating, awful thing happens to your family. It happens to you. And the universe says, that's so awful. Here's six new part-time jobs. Yeah, you've talked about that before. None of which you're you're going to get paid for. Whether it's your relationship with the institutions that exist and the organizations that exist to support you, Mm -hmm. that requires management. It's a relationship with an organization. Like what kind of organization are you? So from the federal to the state to the local level, there are organizations and people in place to help when something like this happens, whether it's law enforcement or medical community Uh or social services. Uh Um, The state of Connecticut and most states have in Connecticut, it's called the Office of Victim Services, OVS. Uh Uh And and that's a it's a state agency. And you have to navigate it as a victim. And you have to navigate it or find someone to help you. If you're really lucky, and this happened to some people, and to some degree it happened to us, somebody called us and said, hey, look, I'm going to introduce myself. This is what I do. Here's my number. Call me. Any questions, anytime, just call me. I will help you navigate it. And I think that happened most of the time with this particular agency. But after a while, things can get really complicated. And the best thing, and I've said this before publicly, the the best decision that was made in the afternoon of, of December 14th at the firehouse, in my view, it's my opinion because of my experience that the best decision that was made was the decision of the Connecticut State Police. And I don't know who made this decision. I could be wrong, but somebody decided that every family should have a law enforcement officer to act as their liaison to the whole world and do whatever they needed for two or three weeks. And unique, I think, yeah. And and that was the smartest thing that anyone did that day. So essentially it was a state trooper that stayed at your house, had a, had a patrol car out front. Out front, he was there from 5 or 6 in the morning to 10, 11, 12 at night. Mm-hmm. And our particular trooper, and I think this is true for a lot of the families, and some of them didn't have troopers, some had local police officers, okay. mm-hmm. um, I think it was just a numbers and scheduling thing. It must have mm-hmm. been a night. It must have been a logistical mm-hmm. nightmare. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Let's take twenty six. Let's take twenty six important people and yeah. take them off their job for two or three weeks. And they have to be able to handle it emotionally and show some compassion. Absolutely, and respect. absolutely. Yeah. So, so he never forced his way into our lives, but mm-hmm. we, of course, being who we are, opened the door immediately yeah. and said, "Please come in." Yeah. And and he's a remarkable man, and we we have a relationship to this day. Um, but he was there to calm us when we were scared as only a a law enforcement person could do. Mm -hmm. He was there to, um, drive us wherever, you know, whatever. If I had dry cleaning that needed to be picked up, he'd go do it. If it, you know, he, it was just the best thing in the world. Now, fortunately there were other people around who could handle that. Mm -hmm. And there were also, there was a family in town who did that on the practical logistical life stuff end. and they uh, they yeah. assigned a person to be yes. their point person to them and then they handled you know we had a we had a washer and dryer break like right afterward and without you know we go downstairs one day and there's a yeah, new how do you deal a, with that you can new, barely get out of bed right what are you gonna right. do with that so yeah. that's those are examples of, of giving people space 
that okay. they need to be actively in space grief. and at the same time just be around right. be available to right. step up when they need right. you right? right so you right. when you say give space that doesn't mean keep your distance no not at all yeah not at all yeah. it does it, but but know know when the distance is necessary uh -huh. use your best intuitions and know when it's time to check in yeah okay. you know i got a little in the weeds with that but Understanding what part of your reaction is really for you and understanding that someone going through this needs emotional and physical space to do the work that needs to be done to survive are two of the most important things that you can take away from this. Okay. As an anecdote that you may know, in I believe it was in the grocery store, Francine had a woman, I forget who, someone came up to her and said, "I can I give you a hug for me? Someone she didn't even know. Yeah. I didn't know well. Well, I didn't know well. I yeah. said, can I give you a hug? And, and But at least she was honest. She said, look, this is so for she me. she said for yeah, me. Yeah, she said, for me. Huh. Can I give you a hug for me? You know, Francine was a little taken aback uh -huh. at her candor. Uh, yeah. But, but, you know, and at first a little offended. But in retrospect, how honest of her. I mean, I don't know that she knew she was being so clear in that way. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel it about that. It just came out. So what did Francine say? I don't she think she said anything. Hug? I think she, she gave her a hug and well, that's nice. held her a little bit, and then they went on their way. You know? Yeah, I feel weird about that. I don't think she should have to give out hugs. No, she shouldn't. Yeah. She shouldn't. But, you know, I said not long after that I became very, very, very fluent very quickly in the nature of human interaction around this. Yeah that I could tell from a few paces away what was going to go down. I could tell just by looking mm. at the way the person was approaching yep. me, how it was going to, how it was, what was going to happen. Learn how to read it. And yeah. there was a lot of hugging, you know, people I would have shook hands with in the past. That went right out. The yeah. Way. I mean, I did that myself. Yeah, sure. People I, mean, I only knew peripherally, I would ask. Right. right. Um, but I just felt like right. that was appropriate to just kind of give that. Right. I'm not sure if it was. Right. You know what? It depends on the person. That's exactly it. You it can't depends generalize. on the circumstance. It depends on yes, the environment. The it depends on the person. It depends on the moment. It depends on the dynamic of the, of the interaction. I mean, and really, would you really feel does. comfortable saying no thank you to a hug? I had, I did on several occasions okay. say, I, I, I'm sorry, but I can't right Good. now. I just and can't. I think I'm that's not. Important. It's hard to do. Yeah. I felt weird saying that. And I walked away from it thinking, I must be the biggest jerk that ever lived. Yeah, you again. You get a pass, though. But well, but in my right? own head, yeah. Right? I mean, you know, yeah. nobody else was saying that. Oh, you didn't hug her. Yeah, you believe that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody said that. Yeah. But so you know, your story and your situation is such a tragic and extreme one. But I think that the information that you've shared today is valuable to anybody who has been victimized and anybody who's been through trauma or just seriously painful life events. Mm -hmm. Another aspect of the space thing that was incredibly important and helpful was that I, I happened to be fortunate enough to work for a company that got this. Yes. And I know guys, I know people in other families were not this fortunate to have a circumstance where the guy who runs the company said to me on the phone that day, that Friday, he said, you have the full weight of this company behind you, you know, whatever you need. And the gift that they gave me was to to give me three months. Wow. I didn't go back for three months. That's 
That's amazing. And that's not like it's a big wealthy company. Either. No, no. 35 people. So, small so he family said it. He meant company. it. And then he followed through. T- and then he followed through. That's, that's wonderful. You know, no wonder you're and, still there. And there was no, there was no conversation. There was no discussion. Yeah. There was no negotiating. He was like, come back mm-hmm. when you're ready. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think if only so many other families who deal with tragedy had a state trooper to know, take care I of know. them and had, I think of that all the time. had, you know, time off. Right. There's I mean, so it's, the, it's the nature of our, don't have this. Right. It's the nature of our circumstance mm-hmm. sad, that allowed for that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, but you know what? I mean, it's, I'm sure it was very valuable to you. And at the same time, it was like the least you should get. And mm-hmm. it's, the least anybody should get really right. yeah, unfortunately it really it's it's not realistic and it's not equitable what would your advice be to someone else who has been through something terribly painful and has felt very upsetting reactions from other people re-victimization and is feeling defeated from it on mm-hmm. top of the the original pain that they have to process as well. Well, absolutely. Number one, first and foremost, get into a therapeutic relationship with someone you trust, someone you trust and, and, um, and resonate with. I second that. That's absolutely the most important part of self-care in my opinion. I, I'm of the belief that there isn't a person on the planet who couldn't benefit from some guided self-introspection, uh, yep. right? Yep. And, and not everyone believes that, but then mm-hmm. that's fine, you know, mm-hmm. but cognitive behavioral therapy and regular, constant work on what we were going through saved us. Okay. You know, saved, saved, saved us. I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that it, mm-hmm. that it saved, certainly saved our marriage and possibly our lives. Wow. Okay. That's number one. Mm-hmm. All right, David, this has been really enlightening and moving and I'm so appreciative of you for coming here today and for opening up and sure, sharing your to. your painful experiences to help other people. So thank you. Well, I've said it before, not to not to end with a slogan, but I've I've said before oh, that, that there's that you know, I don't I don't know a lot, but I know one thing, and that is that I know why we're here. And, and I've told you this before. And what I've learned in all of this is that the only reason we're here is to take care of each other. That's really it. We're not here to protect our stuff. Uh-huh. We're not here to keep other people from finding joy. Uh-huh. We are here to take care of each other. That's a beautiful message. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you found this conversation as valuable and thought-provoking as I did. I'm so grateful to David for making the effort and taking the time to speak with me about these difficult and important topics. If you'd like to peruse all the episodes and see pictures and show notes, go to truth, the letter N consequences.com and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where I post about upcoming episodes, past guests in the news, and issues around the aftermath of trauma. If you like the podcast and want to support it, you can give me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and even easier, tell your friends about it. If you're interested in my personal coaching services, you can read about them on the coaching page at secondwound.com and contact me through the site. 
Thank you for listening and for all the support, everyone. And always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by my friend David Boyle. 